The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. My name is Noah Tolley. I'm executive director of the Center for Urban Engagement at Wheaton College, where I also serve as professor of urban studies and politics and international relations. I'm here with Nathan Graw, professor of economics and Ada M. Harrison, distinguished teaching professor of social sciences at Carleton and also the author of Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education, a 2018 book with Johns Hopkins University Press that has in some ways set the agenda for discussions about the next five and 10 years in higher ed across the country. Thank you for being with us, Nathan. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so help us understand the basic demographic shift that you see coming around 2026, or we all see coming around 2026, but you have a particular way of analyzing. Yeah, so, I mean, we of course know that demographics are constantly changing. We're experiencing this on all of our campuses as due to birth rates and immigration, we've seen a change in the nature of who's in our pool. And on top of this long standing trend, um, in the fallout from the 2008 financial crisis, young families stopped having as many kids. And obviously for those of us who teach traditional age students, that's a problem because we can anticipate then 18 years later, we start to see a decline in the number of prospective students. Um, so what my work was trying to do is to bring information about the probability of college going so that we don't necessarily treat every student as equal when we think about their contribution to the demand for higher education um, and interact that with this headcount data from Census Bureau data to get a sense of what might we expect to happen in the different submarkets of higher education as we experience this decline in fertility that begins around 2026 for our markets, that is 18 years after 2008. Um, but at this point, we know we'll then continue on into the mid-2030s because we haven't seen a rebound in fertility. So, so if I understand this correctly, we not only saw a decline in birth rates following 2008 in the economic recession, which is normal, for a recession, uh, but exactly. we haven't seen a subsequent uptick. No, there was a brief little uptick in 2013, 2014, but very small, and then it quickly reversed. And so um, Kenneth Johnson up at the University of New Hampshire has looked at the question, how many missing babies are there in the decade following the Great Recession? And we're now over 6 million kids that weren't born that would have been born had fertility rates stayed at 2007 levels. So it's it's a fairly substantial gap that we're looking at. And we're posting the numbers of births in 2019. The number was the lowest we'd seen in 34 years. Um, so yeah, the, the question is why? Um, I think there are a couple possible answers. One would be, um, we also have seen that Hispanic Americans have been increasing for a while now, their uptake of higher education. And we know that as education, especially of women rises, fertility rates tend to fall. So some of this might be actually the, the side effect of a positive effect of increased access. Um, the surge in Hispanic enrollments has not been primarily at two-year schools, it's been at four-year schools. And so we're seeing 
Hispanic Americans make education choices that are very positive for them, but it may come at a consequence of lower fertility. Um, most Western countries have very low fertility compared to the US. And so we were kind of the anomaly in 2007. And so the question then is, should we, should we be asking, why aren't we returning back to that old number? Or should we be asking why, you know, how did we manage to persist at high fertility in 2007? A more negative interpretation would focus on some other statistics. We've seen, for instance, the heroin epidemic. We've seen um, middle-aged white males commit suicide at high rates. We've seen a decline um, in the, the life expectancy uh, overall because of these factors. Those things seem to speak more toward um, you know, a negative outlook on the future that may be consistent also with declines in fertility. So while I think there's more research to be done about just why this is happening, I think there are some reasons to think that it's it's not just a blip and we should hope that we can return to normal soon, but rather that there's been a shaking out, um, maybe for positive reasons, maybe for less positive reasons. So we have an across the board enduring apparently change uh, in the number of 18 year olds or, or high school graduates or however we want to put that, uh, that we would see beginning in 2026, 18 years after the 2008 so that's kind of the yeah that's kind of the question is it across the board so when i got into this i saw this um WICHE, the western interstate commission for higher education puts out a forecast of the number of high school grads and i'd seen a, a WICHE report from 2012 and saw how the northeast quadrant of the country was just kind of imploding and obviously for a place like carlton and no doubt for wheaton as well that's an important submarket for us nationally. Um, higher education in general and private four-year higher education in particular draws from that Northeast deeply. And to see that part of the country implode was kind of disturbing. But my second thought was, well, but okay, but who isn't having kids, right? I mean, maybe it's not Carlton students who aren't being born. And so that kind of kicked off my research agenda. And there are vast differences in college-going probabilities largely for ill, uh, you know, I'm not saying these are good differences. This is just the reality that by race, by income, by region, we don't see students, young people, equally likely to go to college or to go to colleges of particular types. And so using Department of Education longitudinal data, I estimated different probability models for attending institutions in the top 50 colleges and universities, say on one hand, and then those that are ranked outside the top 100 on the other hand for four-year schools and then two-year colleges as a separate market. And so what we actually see is that there are some shifts taking place at the same time that sort of favor the top end, that increasing access that we have accomplished in higher education over recent decades means more and more college-educated parents. And college-educated parents are more likely to send their kids to four-year colleges in general and selective four-year colleges in particular. So there seems to be an increasing return to prestige, if you will, that means that the very top end of the market, we see sort of this general rise and then a correction when we get to the mid-2020s that then sort of reverses and the rise continues in the 2030s. Whereas um, for regional schools, those schools not ranked in the top 100 colleges or universities, there we see a market that's sort of flat and then um, it falls off the edge. And there's also a regional difference. Um, the Northeast, as I said, is not has been participating in low fertility for a while. And so in that part of the country, they're already in sort of a slow decline that in the mid-2020s, we can anticipate picking up a bit. Whereas out West, they're sort of in this rise that we'll get, uh, we'll see a reversal, but it still leaves them uh, with more students in 2034 than they have today if we continue to see college going by the same patterns we've seen so far. Mm. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, region, race, 
parents' level of educational attainment and income all play major roles. Big roles, absolutely. Um, tell me about the, the upshot then of these variables. The upshot seems to be to create an account or, or a more nuanced understanding, more nuanced account of the likely effects according to region and an institution's level of prestige. You began highlighting some of those things. Can you dive a little deeper on that? Yeah, so I mean, I, as, as, as I said, when I saw the witchy data, my first thought was, gee, I don't know, does this apply to me? And yeah. I think the answer for my research is for most institutions, yes. The vast majority of institutions are not in the top 50 colleges or universities. There are these regional institutions ranked outside the top 100 national colleges and universities. Um, and the witchy data and my data look very, very similar when we look at those projections. And that's because so many students are going to college today. Uh, over 70% of high school graduates attend some post-secondary institution the subsequent fall. Well, when you have college uptake at that rate, it can just, there's not much space between sentences like the population is declining and the population of college bound students is declining. Mm -hmm. And so we just generally see that if, if those of us in higher ed in general wanted to ignore the witchy data and hope cross our fingers that well, maybe the decline in births is taking place in the sub part of the population that's not relevant to my market. That's just not true. We have to contend with this. There is an increasing return to prestige. So those schools that are ranked in the top 100 and especially the top 50 colleges and universities seem to have an easier path ahead. Though I would note that we have to remember that we're all in this together in some sense. So, you know, if, if you're at an institution that's ranked in the top 50, you certainly do feel a little bit more comfortable, but you have to remember that you're competing. We know because we see the admissions data with institutions that might be ranked 75th, say. And if they're really feeling the heat, they might discount more aggressively. And all of a sudden stories that we used to tell successfully about why you should pay a little bit more to go to our institution becomes a story about, wait, why should I pay that much more? Um, so I, I think that no institution should be looking at this kind of change in demographics and think, oh, we've got it easy. I think certainly some are in a more privileged position and will have some distinct advantages, but we're all going to have to adapt um, or else we're going to start, start to feel the consequence of just having fewer young people. Hmm. I wanna come back to that question about adaptation in a minute and talk about your forthcoming book, the, the work that you're producing right now. But before we get there, um, if I understand correctly, we'll see both an increase in the number of students who are seeking admission to top tier schools, right? Demand for the top tier, demand for the most prestigious schools. We're also going to see an increase in the percentage of students who are first generation students too. Is that correct? Well, so my... Um, my research actually suggests no, not to the first generation because of the increasing access. So uh, whether we're talking about the market for two-year colleges or elite four-year colleges in all subsets, I actually project a decreasing share of the first generation students and an increasing share of parents with, with two bachelor's degrees. Now that said, I'm not sure that, that really means that we can um, set aside our concerns for the struggles of first-gen students, in part because it's, it's a very small reversal. In essence, we'd be looking at the very beginning of, we've, we've seen this increase and we've been teaching more and more first-gen mm -hmm. students, and then we're now starting into that next generation where we just come down the other side. Um, so there's still a lot of first-gen students. But second, I'm not sure that it means the same thing in 2035 to say my mom's got a bachelor's degree as it is when I went to college and I said, my mom has a bachelor's mm. degree. Um, when I said it, probably the, the 
picture you have in mind is the correct picture, um, a residential four-year college, um, you know, a, a traditional path. And now we know so many students are doing things like, well, I did some uh, CLEP tests and then I went to a two-year college and then I transferred to a four-year school and then back to a two-year college and picked up more credits and did some online stuff and then I completed a four-year program or something like that. That student who has a parent with that experience is not without the social capital that we we like to see in our students if we hope that they don't need as much advising. Um, but they still have some distinct needs to navigate the Byzantine systems. And I don't say that with, I mean, we have reasons. There are reasons we do what we do, but it can be overwhelming to a student who can't call up mom or dad and say, hey, can you help me? I'm trying to figure out how to register. Um, and so advisors might in the future not see as many first-gen students, but still see just as many problems that we associate with first-gen students in the need of, of extra advising. I think you know what we are going to see though is, is um, an increasing diversification. We'll certainly see uh, more non-Hispanic, we'll see decrease in, in the non-Hispanic white population. Uh, and that's true again across the board, whether we're talking the two-year market or the elite four-year market, um, the diversification in America is you know well underway and it will continue um, pretty much no matter what we do for it. I mean, you could cut immigration by half and I figure you'd still see an increase in diversification. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a rise in Hispanic students generally, though at the most selective institutions, we also see an increasing share of Asian American students due to immigration from Asian countries. Hmm. So everything we've talked about so far uh, actually points to things that are outside the control of colleges and universities, or at least they're things that are unlikely to change and especially unlikely to change in the next five years. Most schools aren't gonna be changing their regions. Most right. schools don't have a way to dramatically move up in uh, what we would call the rankings of prestige, right? They can't move themselves from tier three to tier one. Most can't move themselves from tier two to right. tier one. So those things aren't gonna change. The demographic changes are beyond their control as well. So what I wonder is what, what can colleges and universities do in the face of these challenges? What do you see them doing? And as I understand it, you have a, a new project you're working on, the Agile College that treats just this question. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I like the way you frame this question because it, it underscores that we face some real challenges. Um, the, the decline in fertility is a real thing that, that we have to grapple with. If we keep doing what we've been doing, then my research projects out, well, this is what our future holds, but we don't need to do what we've been doing. We can, we can respond in different ways. We can teach to new students. We can reach out to new populations. We can try to retain students more effectively. And so in, in my follow-up work, what I did was to talk to higher ed experts who are grappling with these problems on their campuses, try to get ahead of demographic change and think, what can we do differently from the recruitment point all the way to collaborating with other institutions? And we do see some institutions that are thinking creatively about how can we transform what we do and sometimes who we are so that we have a different set of possibilities. So for instance, um, for selective institutions, we might think about who we're admitting, who we're saying no to in particular. Um, even if you're semi-selective, I've seen things like the um, College Board's landscape tool, and I'm not gonna shill for the College Board, they sell their products very well, but it is interesting to see how bringing in data about crime rates and poverty rates and home ownership rates in the neighborhood where students grew up can help institutions read files differently. I was talking to the uh, admissions director at Florida State University, where they used the landscape tool in a in a beta version, 
in admissions to a bridge program. And they were so pleased with how it provided additional information that they then used the tool on their marginal pile at the end of their admissions process. So these were students probably headed toward no, but you know, letters hadn't gone out. And they went through that pile and they said, let's find the most disadvantaged students in this pool and let's reread those files now noting these background um, challenges that these students had overcome. Does, does a, an 1100 on the SAT mean the same thing when it comes from a student who's got all of the advantages in the world versus when it comes from a student who's facing all of the challenges in the world. And they found an additional something like 1,200 students to admit that turned into 400 matriculations because they were thinking differently about what does it mean to have a skill that makes you a Florida State student. And they were seeing that this grit and determination was a different kind of skill that was uh, useful to consider. Another example, um, comes from Simpson College in Iowa, where um, they started, um, I'm sorry, it's Morningside in Iowa, where they started admitting students who they have said no to in the past and instead giving them a conditional admission, but then crea creating a, a very uh, structured first term. Um, students are not allowed to participate in what they call talent groups, so they can't be on the football team. It's, look, you know, we're, we're not trying to get around recruitment rules, we're, we're trying to do what's best for the student. And these students um, need a successful fall term in order to fill in some gaps and then they are prepared to be Morningside students. And so they're giving these conditional yeses. If you successfully complete the fall, then you'll be unconditionally admitted to Morningside starting spring term. Um, I see um, other instances where it's more thinking about the retention issue. So whether it's, um, let's see, it was Iowa, I, Iowa State rather, no, University of Iowa, they created something called the Pick One program. Uh, Trying to encourage every student to have one extracurricular group that they were attached to. And it's really more about a marketing plan so that faculty know every student is being encouraged this. And so in the fall, if I run into a student and want a conversation starter, I can always say, hey, what's your pick one? Mm -hmm. And it's a way to start a conversation. It's also a way to nudge students into student groups that might give them a better sense of belonging and connection. Uh, St. Cloud State University in Minnesota has uh, come up with a short 10 question survey that really does a great job of identifying students who have a 3.0 GPA or better in fall term, but are prone to attrition either in the spring term or the following fall. So they're giving this out to every incoming first year student in the first few weeks of the term of that fall, that first fall, to identify which students are, they're, they're indicating they don't feel like they belong, they don't feel connected, and can we give that information to faculty to help them get connected sooner and, and hopefully improve uh, retention that way. And we're seeing uh, collaborations like data projects that the tribal colleges and universities are doing with uh, Achieve the Dream. These are small institutions, much like your institutions are, um, who might not have enough of a sample size to suss out whether you know this kind of programming or that kind of programming really works with our students. But when they pool their data, A, they can see what works, and B, they can see, look, you know, we, we like to pat ourselves on the back for this attribute, but when we compare ourselves to our peers, we're actually lagging. Why is it that we're lagging in this statistic, and what can we do to bring ourselves uh, to a higher level of success with our students? So whether it's, you know, retention or recruitment, um, or collaborating with other institutions. Uh, I've seen Drake University recently added a, um, an associate's degree program within their university. Um, this is a different version. I, I've also seen institutions collaborating with nearby two-year colleges to make that transition to their institutions easier. Obviously, bringing it in-house makes it really easy to have a clear articulation path from the two-year degree to the four-year degree program. But all of these are, are in essence saying, given that students are going to be a different kind of student group in the future, given that we need to be more creative about maybe 
who we define as one of us, how can we transform who we are so that we are an institution that speaks to these students? And you know, I, I think in the end, if we do these kinds of things, we're better fulfilling our missions, right? And, and that's, that's what we're really after anyway. So if we better fulfill our missions and that allows us to recruit new students and retain them and support them to student success, well, that sounds like an all around good thing to do. And by the way, it, it does take the edge off of a demographic hangover. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the, the Drake example, uh, the example of the institutions that are pooling their data to better understand what kinds of programs will serve students well or attract students well. Because in, until you mentioned those two, uh, it had to do with students who are already applying at different admissions practices and students who are already at the school, different retention practices. And I wonder if uh, there are you know, a couple of things you would highlight beyond the Drake example and the pooling of data example that have to do with offering things or, or making your identity known to students who don't understand who you are as a college and increasing the pool of applicants. Have you seen schools do that well? I think, I think a lot of schools are trying a lot of things. The one word of caution is obviously we're all, we're all competing with each other. So when we focus on the admission strategies, there are only two possibilities. One, the most likely is it's a zero sum game. I win and therefore you or someone else loses that student. When we really truly do expand access as arguably you can do with that landscape program where we start saying yes to students that we think might be a no to anyone. Mm -hmm. That's when we potentially have the chance to expand our pool or our, our uh, matriculations without it necessarily coming at a cost from others. And I think that's necessary to think about because we have to be honest. When we say we're going to recruit our way out of this, um, okay, so why do I think that I'm going to succeed where others fail? Because the number of students is going down. It mm -hmm. seems like uh, there may be answers to that question, but I have to be honest with myself that that's the argument I'm making. I will succeed where others fail. And sometimes that's true and sometimes that's hubris. So, you know, I think um, we certainly have seen over the years things like offering different programming. Um, Gen Z students were told by the researchers are more interested than ever in the relevance of studies. What's the connection to life after college? So I would stress that it's never been the case that students didn't care about that. I think some of us in higher ed have sometimes um, defined our purpose in really strange ways that are like the liberal arts experience is anything that isn't of practical value. Well, what a bizarre concept. Right. Um, Gallup and Strata put together a poll asking students and, and families about what was the most important thing in the degree they chose and which institution they chose. And on the which institution, um, the first answer was location, but the second one was relevance to life after college. And interestingly, there was another option, uh, something like learning and knowledge. And I just think it's fascinating that somebody wrote up a survey where relevance to life after college was distinct from learning and knowledge. But I think it does well capture sometimes what we present to students. And so we see um, Lewis University doing computer science plus X degrees, mm. where you bring music or anthropology together with computer science and have a joint degree program where we make that relevance a little bit clearer. Or we see Endicott College in Massachusetts, which has been doing very well despite really a tough regional environment. And they have a signature um, program in internships. And I think that, you know, that might not be a coincidence. We also see Northeastern and Drexel doing very well, despite being centered in markets that are down markets. And they too have signature co-op programs. Um, Beloit College in Wisconsin has been trying to borrow that though, you know, it, with all of these context is so important. You can't just do what another college is doing. So in their case, they've seen the power of co-ops. 
but Beloit being in rural Wisconsin knows it doesn't have the same opportunities that someplace like you at Wheaton do with proximity to Chicago. So they're trying to come up with ways for co-ops and internships, um, yes, in local or organizations, maybe the organizations aren't as high profile, but the student has a, a greater opportunity to be in a decision-making role because the, the town and area of Beloit uh, is really starved for high quality talent. And so Beloit college undergraduates can really have meaningful roles in local institutions. So there has to be the, the local contextual flavor to all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that you know, we can also talk about programming as a way to open our appeal to different students. Sure. So you've got to, to build on your distinctives. I, I like the um, point you make as well about when you're thinking through those admissions questions, like the school that uses um, the data from College Board to inform its marginal decisions, looking for the students that maybe no one will say yes to and making that a yes. That's a, that's a very interesting approach that doesn't have to be zero sum, as you point right. out. Um, but I think it also, it's incumbent upon us then to change, right? We got to change right. the way we teach. If you're getting new students, and, and sometimes faculty will talk about this from a deficit perspective of, so we have to provide greater support. And I would actually argue that's probably true. Um, these students may have gaps in their education. We're drawing from different high schools with different uh, levels of support. But it's also true that these students bring different assets. And if I don't change the way I teach, I'm not going to capitalize on the great new thing that is now in my classroom because we're tapping into a different student group. And so I think it's, it's wonderful for admissions folks to think creatively, but we in the faculty have to do our part as well to recognize that we are a significant part of the retention um, equation. But we also, if we're gonna make the most of uh, the wonderful diversity in my classroom, I'm gonna have to change the way I teach, maybe ask different discussion questions, open it up a bit to tap into these new assets that are new student groups. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you went there because that, that was going to be my next question. Um, you've already answered it, which is then what would that mean for us if we took that approach? What, what else would we have to consider? And I love your asset-based answer there. Your point about um, the survey that actually asked students, you know, what was most important to them? And second uh, was relevance to life after college and third was knowledge and learning and you point out as if those things are different but it's telling that it was written that way and that it made sense to respondents Um, the way that i frame what we do at liberal arts colleges is that we need to be teaching students to make a living but also to make a difference and to make meaning or find significance in their life their work their communities the world we do a great job usually at emphasizing and communicating about that last point, making meaning or finding significance. We do an okay job sometimes with making a difference. And we do a poorer job, I think, as liberal arts colleges in particular, talking about and being comfortable with this question of making a living or what right. those students may have meant to relevant by, by relevance to life after college. Um, and I wonder, you know, this points to Um, the fact that all of this is unfolding, the demographic shift is unfolding in a context of ambiguous shifts in understanding of and demand for the kind of education that my institution, Wheaton College, offers, that your institution, Carleton, offers. Um, What would be some takeaways for liberal arts colleges in particular? What should we be considering in the next five years? Yeah, so my advice would be the first thing that you have to do is 
to, if you haven't already asked it, ask it. But if you have, keep your eye focused on what's your core mission. I mean, if you don't know the answer to that question, it's going to be really hard to do something sensible. Um, talk to John McGee, who's the author of Breakpoint, about um, these kinds of issues. And he noted that one of the risks is that we won't really grapple with these questions until we're really at a point of crisis. And at that point, we're not usually thinking super strategically or clearly. We're just grasping at straws. You know, give me 12 more students from China. Surely, with a country so large, we can get 12 more students. But those choices that we make in that kind of context can easily lead us to be dissipated. We're moving this direction, that direction. It's not aligned with who we are or where we're going. And those usually fail, right? So you can recruit this new student group, but you really haven't thought about what does this mean for student life? And then the students come, perhaps initially, and they figure out that this is not really a coherent vision that you've got. It's just you're grasping at straws. And so the, the benefit is short-lived. So I, I think we do need, and, and the, the schools in your consortium obviously have a distinct mission. Um, so who are we? And as we do that, I think it does two things, know who we are, but it also eliminate, eliminates extraneous constraints. Um, I was talking to Joey King, who's president of Lyon College, who's done some consulting with schools. And he said, I don't know how many times I've been to a campus. And I'll say, look, your, your mission statement really isn't that restrictive. Mm -hmm. um, and there are all sorts of things that we might think about changing. And the answer is no, you can't touch that. You can't touch location. You can't touch this. You can't touch the student faculty ratio. You can't, he's like, none of this is in the mission statement. And, and people will say, I can't imagine our institution operating without X. And he'll point out, but just 20 years ago, you didn't have X. I mean, they're like, no, we don't remember that time. We put so many constraints on the solution. And I think by being really laser focused on what is our mission, it means two things. It means holding on to what we should be held on to, but also being willing to compromise and let go of the stuff that isn't at the core. You know, I think about my own faith and, and the, the importance of that concept of, hey, what, what's my core faith? That can't change. Mm. But then there are all sorts of other issues of, of theology where I, I have to have some humility and allow for, okay, that, you know, I, I might not agree with you. And, and yet, you know, that it's a little bit different than a disagreement at the core. What's core? Um, so that would be the first question I would go to. The second would be um, having an openness to reconsidering what we do or, or who we are. This comes back to taking advantage of the assets of new student groups. Um, uh, I was talking to Marty Swidell, who uh, was uh, in strategy at Goucher College, and he talked about um, faculty resistance to change, not being really change resistance, but change immunity that we have built up immunities to change, uh, which is actually a good thing. It's just like our antibody system. We've seen this thing before. And so sometimes when faculty say, no, we're not doing that. There's a good reason for that. Mm. Um, but just as we can with allergies, sometimes we have a hyperactive immune system that says a knee jerk, no. And that's what we have to resist. Like, yes, let's recognize that sometimes there's a good reason we haven't done things and we shouldn't do those things. And then other times it's just, this is what's comfortable. And as we adapt to a changing world, we have to be open to reconsidering who are we and what do we do? Might we have to expand our understanding of who we are and what we do? And then the third thing I would say is to expand the ownership problem. So when we talk about retention um, and recruitment, I know a lot of faculty have pretty narrow senses of what their role should be. You know, the admissions folks, go get me the same students you got me last year, and then I'll teach them. Um, of course, if they don't learn effectively, I'll flunk them too. Right? So, okay, we, we have to get past that siloed notion 
of the enrollment management office, whatever it's called, is responsible for enrollment management and recognize that students have contact with every single staff member and faculty member on campus pretty much. We are all the recruitment office. And so for, for faculty members, that means when a student comes to my office hour, I recognize that this transaction might be the one which for this student is the difference between do I re-enroll or not? You know, I, I've had some bumps and I'm trying to figure out, am I gonna, you know, and, and I have to treat students accordingly. And if I'm on the janitorial staff in a dorm, I have to recognize that I too am in the re retention staff, that I'm running into students and having meaningful conversations. I think about my roommate who used to watch soap operas at lunch with the custodian in our dorm. Um, they had a really close relationship. When he goes back to reunions, he seeks her out. Um, Every staff member and every faculty member can be part of the retention team, but we have to see that. So an example from Susquehanna, where they built um, retention into the compensation program, where mm. if the college hits these uh, retention goals, everybody gets a raise. As a way of communicating, we're all in this part of the operation together. Retention and recruitment is so critical for the financial health of our institution. We can't have even a small number, much less the majority of employees say, that's somebody else's problem. I'm sure they'll sort it out. We all have to say, hey, let's, we're, we're team members. What, what do you need from me? But that doesn't mean as a faculty member, I tell the admissions folks, hey, let me tell you how to make the view book. Um, I have to trust they do have expertise, but rather more humbly say, okay, what do you need from me? What, how can I help? How can I come alongside? Exactly. So I'm, I'm hearing, uh, in addition to the distinctives point that you made earlier a few times, um, the related point of mission and staying focused on that, not only because it can inform what you do do, but it can help you let go of yeah. other things you don't need to do. Exactly. Um, I, I'm hearing uh, the second point is creativity. In, in light of what you've, you've allowed yourself to let go of or how, you've allowed, to see, how have you, you've allowed yourself to see the mission, you can do new things and you may need to do that. You may need to right. not be change immune, as exactly. you put it. And then the third point, we need to be all in this together. Um, so here, here's a question I was going to end with, but I think you may just have addressed it. Um, what, are the, what are the most important questions or challenges you would put to a group that's doing the work that we're doing or to our consortium of institutions? Um, just to put that in context, we're in phase one of a three-year research project. And this phase involves great conversations with interlocutors all over the country and the world like yourself, where we, we don't presume we already know the questions to ask. We get the luxury of a whole year of conversations with people where we ask them, what are the questions they think we should be asking? So are there a couple of questions you would put on our radar screen? And then are there a couple of resources that you would point us to that you think are really important to our work or liberal arts colleges in the next five years? So I think, we have to be honest about the challenge we're facing. And so one question I would want my colleagues, myself to ask is realistically looking forward to the changing nature of students that will be in higher education in the next 10 or 20 years. How, how can we reinvent or reconceive who we are to better match with that, with that changing um, body of student needs? I think there's so much in what we do that shouldn't change. I am fiercely committed to the liberal arts model. I think. You, know, you mentioned we don't tell the story very well, and yet the data is so in our favor that a liberal arts approach is a wonderful approach. You can see it in academically adrift where narrow professional degree students didn't do very well. And then they say, oh, there's one little exception. You know, here's a, a 
a degree pattern where students were really doing well. And what they described was basically a liberal arts education. Um, we do have a good story to tell. So I'm not suggesting that we throw the baby out, but we do need to keep track of what's, what is that core. And so asking, you know, realistically, what could we do differently to better align with student needs and student identities in the future um, is a challenging question because it, it prompts us to change. It requires a, a grace that allows the other maybe to dominate the conversation a bit. And, you know, I'll be honest, it's not a comfortable one for me. I'm 21 years into a career that's probably going to be 40 before I can retire. And wouldn't it be nice if I could just do what I've done for the last 20 for the next 20? Um, but, you know, there, there's can also be some joy in reinventing yourself and coming up with new ways. So I guess where, where can I joyfully um, reinvent who I am, who we are, so that I better align with, with our students. And I think that, you know, the answer to that question is going to vary from institution to institution because we're all in different markets. Some markets, um, the different student groups have to do with race, ethnicity. Sometimes it has to do with class. Sometimes it has to do um, with different uh, regions within or subregions within your region. Um, so it's a different question that's in essence being posed to each institution. As far as resources, uh, Wichi has a great tool uh, with their projections of high school graduates uh, at the state level, you can see not only their projections for the numbers of students by state, but you can also see the demographic mix. Um, they're updating their figures, I think, in December. They're going to uh, put out their new uh, 2020 report. So you can watch for that release at the end of this year. I think it's a great way to just ground your conversation in some realism. Most of our schools recruit from maybe four core states, maybe less. Um, you know, and saying, look, we should know what what the landscape looks like. And for many schools, while you can think about on the margins, tilting your admissions to a few extra states, realistically, you're, you're regionally bound. And so we just need to accept those realities and then contemplate how do we need to change the results. So I think that's a great resource to use. Sure, thank you, Nathan, that's really fantastic. Um, I've appreciated the time you spent with us this afternoon. And I look forward to getting this out to our viewers on the web. Uh, and to recommending your future book, The Agile College, to them too. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here.